0: Well, good evening, everyone. It's great uh, to be with you. We're going to be looking this evening at our first reading, uh, which is uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 29. It's on page uh, 1176. If you've closed your Bibles, do uh, open it with me. And shall I pray as we start to look at it together? The uh, writer of Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Lord God, how appropriate it is that as we uh, are here on Bible Sunday, we are looking at a passage about speech. You are a speaking God, and as your creatures we speak also, and we pray that these words that I speak would indeed be words that have the power of life behind them, the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to hear your voice and to speak life to each other. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how many words you think you speak in a day. Any guesses? Anyone done any tossing up? Any counts? Perhaps you've heard the statistic. Maybe some of you might have done. They reckon this is well, it Probably depends on what website you check. I should say. For the website I checked, reckoned that the average human male spoke about seven thousand words. A day anyone know what it was for females <laughs> twenty thousand someone was quite close i don 't know i 've got no idea it 's probably a man who, um, who wrote that wasn 't it but, uh, but that is the, um, the, uh, the statistics that they give and I guess for most of us, speech and the, the ability to speak is something that we, we kind of take for granted don 't we i 'm doing it to you now you 're listening to it it 's something that we all do. Um, just cast your mind back and think, how many words do you think you've spoken in the time that you've been here? I don't know what it'll be, but it's probably quite a lot. More than we'd be surprised, I guess, if we, uh, if we knew what, it, um, what the amount was. And yet, I guess it's very easy to overlook just quite how significant speech is, especially in its place within the church, so as we are gathered here together as the people of God. But more specifically, in our relationships with one another, speaking is vital, how we speak to each other is so important. If you've been with us um, during our series on Ephesians, uh, you'll know that uh, Paul has been setting out for us what God's new people, the church, are supposed to look like. He said that we should be unified, people who are one people, because he is one God. But he's also said that we should be a pure people, because God is pure, he's holy, And this short section this week, he starts to look at a fundamental area that is so easily overlooked. It's how we speak to one another as believers and as children of God, and how that compares with the world. And I think he just gives us three very simple instructions uh, for us on how we cultivate godly speech for us to look at this evening. The first one is uh, in verse 29, and it is, don't speak evil, but rather speak for us encouragement. Paul uh, writes these words, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, according to their needs, that may benefit those who listen. I do think speech is one of the most remarkable characteristics of human beings, when you think about it. Most animals, I guess, can make noises. We were watching the other night a programme about killer whales. They can make noises, they can make some kind of screeching noise, and I guess they can communicate within themselves. And yet it's not speech, is it? You can never confuse that with speech. It is, I guess, one of the key ways in which human beings are made in God's likeness. The Bible talks about that, doesn't it? About being made in God's image. And speech is one of those key ways. God is a speaking God. Creation was formed from his words, we are told. And so we too are speaking gods. He communicates, and so we too can communicate. And yet Paul here in this passage is deeply aware that this capacity for speech and for communication can go one of two ways. Either it can be used for good, to build people up, or it can be abused, it can damage and destroy. Firstly, he tackles for us its abuse. Did you see how he, uh, he takes it, goes straight in? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But literally, what he's saying is, the word that they've translated unwholesome means rotten. It's often used of food that's gone bad, or a tree in someone's garden that has gone rotten right at the very core. It's worthless, it's it's corrupt, it's damaged. And and so just as eating mouldy food will have unpleasant uh, side effects, so will unpleasant words hurt those who hear them. Instead, Paul says to us, no, we're to speak what is helpful for building others up, verse 29. That is words that are full of faith, they're full of wisdom, full of grace, full of truth, full of holiness. Words that are appropriate according to need, that will build people up, will nourish them, encourage people in their walk with the Lord Jesus. We saw a few weeks ago how Christ has given us grace. And so, as Christ has given us grace, so too we are the people who should pass it on to others. Not just in serving them, as we saw a few weeks ago in our different gifts, but actually also in speech. We are to build each other up as we have need. It's when we speak like that, that will help us to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 30, Paul goes on. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, Paul says for us that it's the Holy Spirit that has sealed us or marked us out when we become Christians. We're given the Holy Spirit and it's a, it's, it's a way in which we're, we're marked out. We're sealed as the people of God, those whom Christ has bought by his blood. He's died for us and, uh, and has bought us, redeemed us. And so, as I guess a parent would be hurt when um, children go away from, from what they've been told to do and uh, don't follow their instructions and leading, it's not surprising that the Holy Spirit is also hurt and grieved when we follow, we, we ignore his advice and we act in ways that are contrary to his desires. It's unwholesome speech that will grieve the Holy Spirit, and good speech, pure speech, encouraging speech that will uh, please him. I guess so often we, we give so little thought, don't we, to to what we say, and yet how powerful are just some words. Yesterday we were um, at the wedding of um, some very good friends uh, down in Newmarket, and I was struck as I was listening to the service. Many of us, I guess, have been to, to weddings, and it gets to that point, doesn't it, where the couple make their declarations. And on one level, what they're saying are just words. Just words like I'm saying here. Just, you know, They're just words, aren't they? And yet... On the other level, how powerful are they? Those words, those promises that they make, those statements that they say about God, about themselves, about what they're pledging to do, have that power under God and through God to join them together, to be bound. At the end, the, the, the vicars held up their hands and said, What God has joined, let no one pull apart. It's those words which they have pledged that have accomplished that through God's power and his purposes those are words for good. They're words that we pray will bear lasting fruit as they uh, live lives together. They grow in in their love for each other and their love for God. Yet it can also go very much the other way, can't it? I'm sure we can all think of times when speech goes the other way. I don't know if you follow Christian blogs at all. Uh, You might have come across uh, something called the Strange Fire Conference this week. Um, A pastor called John MacArthur, who's in the States, has been having a a conference, uh, particularly looking at, uh, how should we put it, spiritual gifts and their use, um, and what's the right way to understand the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, a controversial area in the church, don't worry, you're going to hear me on it in a few weeks, so if you want some controversy, come and, uh, come and listen. Um, but predictably, when we, that, that uh, conference has brought forth a storm of words, and if you look up strange fire reaction in google you will see some of it and let me say quite a lot of it is not edifying and it's not helpful and it's not encouraging again they're just words aren't they words that were said at the conference words that have been written about it and yet what a capacity for bad they can have words can go either way it can be used for good or for bad and i guess the challenge for us isn't it this evening is just to think how can we use our words for good how can we use that capacity speech, to build people up. Maybe there's somebody that you know who's going through a rough time but you can just encourage them. Maybe it's not even your own words, even better, it's some words of scripture that you know are appropriate for them. Maybe it's somebody who you see is always serving. Always just the person who's there last, who's always doing the menial jobs that nobody else wants to do and the ones who are always overlooked. Perhaps there's somebody you can just say an encouraging word. Look, brother, I appreciate what you do. Sister, it's just great. Building them up, you're serving little Jesus. Maybe it's somebody you know who's taking a stand for Christ in a really difficult area. Maybe it's a, a student friend, a you know, Christian friend you know who's on a sports team perhaps at, at, at uni or somewhere. Um, it's always under pressure to compromise Christian standards and that just that word of encouragement, I'm with you, I'm praying for you, keep going, you're doing the right thing. How powerful that can be. But I think it's also very easy to go along with unwholesome speech, isn't it? I was at the men's curry night a few weeks ago, and we were talking about how so often we can just almost accept the fact that people's, people's speech, by and large, is unwholesome. And we almost get kind of... I guess it's desensitised to it. It's probably the, the phrase that I'm looking for. We, we, just, we get so used to it, we just ignore it. And I wonder here, if Paul is calling on the Ephesians, and, and so us, to almost develop a kind of gag reflex with speech, unwholesome speech. I guess if you put some mouldy food in your mouth, the instant reaction is for you to spit it out, isn't it? Something in you just tells you that you shouldn't be eating that. That's how we're designed to. Others will do damage. And I wonder if actually for us, the call is to develop an almost gag reflex with unwholesome speech, whether it's from ourselves, whether it's through others. Something just to think about, perhaps. Um, Let's just pray for a sensitivity to speech. It's so easy, isn't it, to just go along with the flow. The world is a world where unwholesome talk dominates. And let's pray, shall we, for a passion for encouraging speech and a sensitivity to it. So that's the first thing. We should, should not speak evil, but we should rather speak encouragement. Second thing, verse 31. Don't be bitter, but rather be a blessing. Verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. When I was growing up, and um, my siblings and I would frequently fall out and biff each other over the head and do all kinds of things to each other, my mother would always say to us, be a blessing. That was one of the phrases i associate with She'd always say it. I don't know where she got it from, but she used to come out with it all the time. And I think that's Paul's heart for the Ephesians here. It's that, it's that same heart, that they would be a blessing to each other. They'd strive to bless each other as they themselves have been blessed. But if that's going to happen... Several things have first got to go. Um, and Paul gives us a little list of things that have absolutely no place in the church or in Christian lives. Uh, bitterness is at the very, very top of his list. Um, I guess we could understand bitterness as being maybe that lasting resentment, that hanging on to past hurts. I guess we, we all know people, maybe we can think of them, who are constantly brooding over the injustices that has been done to them. I used to have a colleague at work He was always like that. He'd always hark back to something in his life. It would always change as well, to be honest. There would be quite a lot of them. Always in his life, some, something had gone wrong, and that was why he was in the state that he was in today. You, you're laughing. You, you, we all know people who are like that, don't we? But it can be. It's, it's funny, but it's, it can also be incredibly damaging because it promotes a hard heart, doesn't it? Bitterness, lasting resentment, brooding over a sense of old injustices. Paul talks about anger, I think it's both that. Uh, I mean, we've got two words here for anger rage and anger. I guess it's both that, that anger which kind of flares up, that temper that suddenly, you know, it's almost like you light a touch paper and boom, it explodes into, a, into a, 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 mad, um, mad, a mad rage. Or maybe it's just that also that habitual hatred. There are some people who are just angry people, aren't they? Probably come across those people who just seem to have some grievance with the world. There's a, just a, it's not, not as, maybe not as dramatic as those people who have a bit of a push their buttons and they explode but they're angry people. They're railing against the world for some reason, some hatred uh, that, that is deep hidden inside. Paul talks about brawling and slander and malice, all these things that should be put away, that, that fighting, um, trashing each other's reputations, plotting evil against um, other people. All of these things have no place, as Paul, in the church and in the people of God. Instead, we're to strive for the qualities that characterise God. You see, we should be comp- kind and compassionate, he says in verse uh, 32. Uh, that is, we should be wanting to bless others. We should be, be wanting to feel with them, sympathise with them in their situations, in their their, their hurts, in their distress. Uh, not looking out, not looking uh, inwards at ourselves all the time, but looking out to them. Both of those, I guess, are qualities that the Bible tells us are, are close to God's heart. The Bible constantly speaks of God's, uh, God's kindness to us, his compassion. And both of them also, I guess, are directly opposed to bitterness and anger. Hardest of all, I, I suppose, is that, uh, that quality that he picks out in the middle of uh, verse 32, that call to forgive. If we have been the recipients of God's great forgiveness of our sins in Christ, so too should our relationships with each other be characterized by a sense of mutual forgiveness. I suppose um, listening to those words, maybe instantly our minds are taken to Jesus' words back in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 15, the, the Lord's Prayer that, uh, that we'll be, be praying. Jesus says uh, these words, and um, familiar words, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. One thing I would never noticed until I, this week when I'd, I read this was how interesting it is That of the one petition that Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, the one one that he picks out for repetition is this one of forgiveness. This is what verse 14 says. He goes on, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus isn't saying, of course, that our forgiveness of others is in some way a way that we earn our own forgiveness of God. No, he's not saying that at all. That would be completely contrary to the gospel. Rather, what he is saying is that forgiveness of others is the inevitable response of a forgiven person. If we can't forgive those who have sinned against us, then clearly we can't have grasped the gospel. We can't have grasped the gospel of a God who would give up everything, in order for us to be forgiven. Christ who died in our place for our sin, so that we could be people who could be forgiven. The two have to go, to, to go together. That Forgiveness is absolutely indispensable if we would call ourselves Christians. Many of you, I'm sure, will have read the um, book um, The Railway Man by Eric Lomax. It came out a few years ago. I think they're making a film of it um, at the moment, but um, see if that, that materialises or not. It's a very powerful story, true story of a British prisoner of war in the uh, Second World War, who was captured on the and made to put to work uh, on the 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 railroad. Uh, I think it's in Burma. I think uh, by the Japanese um, had a really awful time, even by the standards of um, uh, prison camps. He was tortured, very badly ill-treated, um, and the story tells really of, of how. He spent many years after he was released just brooding over what had happened to him, um, a deep sense of anger, bitterness, injustice, uh, and really just never, could never really get away from that at all. Eventually, his wife persuaded him to travel to Japan, uh, and he got in touch with his torturer, or one of the torturers um, who, had, uh, who had mistreated him back in the prison camp all those years ago. And the climax of the story, sorry, spoiler here, is that uh, he seeks his forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, His words are are this, which I think are very powerful. Um, He said, remembering is not enough if it simply hardens hearts. I I guess for all of us, we can remember times in which other people have done things to us. Perhaps we, we know there's somebody in this room who's sitting across the way from us who has done something to us in the past, that has hurt us, that has angered us. And there's that temptation, isn't there, just to hang on to that, to nurse it. And yet that is just not an option. If we have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, how must we also forgive others, forgive our Christian brothers and sisters who have hurt us? In a short while, we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table. We're going to remember how we have been forgiven, how we have peace with God, we are reconciled, the death of his son. And surely it's appropriate that before we gather, we sort things out. Maybe if there is something in your heart that you know um, you need to get right with somebody else, uh, maybe it's not somebody here, but uh, you need to get right with God, let me encourage you to do that. Surely that is an appropriate action. But it's also not a one-off event either, is it? Notice that forgiving is uh, what the, uh, the grammarians would call a, um, a present participle, an ing word. It's a, it's a, it's a word that goes on, It's a constant challenge. It doesn't just we do it once and then we never do it again. We are to be people who are constantly forgiving. The challenge is not to be bitter but be a blessing as God has blessed us with mercy and forgiveness. Finally, Paul tells us don't follow the Gentiles but rather follow God. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly beloved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul has reached the pinnacle of his argument and he says this be imitators of God live a life of love. We saw a few weeks ago that he uh, he told them not to follow the uh, the gentiles that is those people who are who are not part of his people, house of God's people. You can see that uh, earlier on in chapter chapter 4. Those are people who are following a lifestyle of lust. And yet Paul's call is that God's people should follow God supremely in that lifestyle of love. Well, Bert Barckhardt famously wrote that what the world needs now is love because it's the only thing that there's just too little of. And um, I always thought it was a bit of an odd odd phrase, really, because actually love is everywhere, isn't it, in many ways? We just have to turn on the TV screens and you see some demonstration of love. Maybe it's romantic love, as we saw at the wedding uh, the other day. Maybe it's love for for friends, love for, for family. And surely the question is, uh, I guess this is what the Ephesians would be saying, and probably we as well, how can we know what that love should be like? How, how can we know how we ought to be loving? Well, the good news, says Paul, is that God has already given us a pattern to follow. It is indeed the Lord Jesus' love for us that is our example, and it's the standard that we're to live up to. You see that in verse 2. He says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, St. John says in his um, first letter, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Paul says that if you want to, to know what, uh, what love looks like, if you don't want to know how we should be loving, then look to the cross. I guess there are several aspects that we could dwell on if we consider the love of The cross. Perhaps first, it's a love that's willing, isn't it? Jesus was, went willingly to the cross on our behalf. He didn't go because he was forced to. He went voluntarily. He said that he, took, he laid down his life to take it up again. And I guess as Christ willingly loved us to go to the cross, so we should be willing to love others, uh, regardless of whether they love us back. Always a temptation, isn't it, to love those who love us? Actually, the call is to love everyone, regardless of uh, whether they love us or not. It's going to be a love that's costly, isn't it? Paul says that uh, describes the love of Christ as a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God, a love that costs the Lord Jesus absolutely everything to the point of death, the point of separation from the Father as he bore our sins, as he bore the Father's wrath on our behalf. The cross cost Christ his very life for us. It perhaps will cost forgiveness, will cost love will cost time, it will cost energy, maybe it will cost our, our money, Finally, it's a love, isn't it, that's centred on others. The wonder of the cross is that it's love that's centred on us, people who don't deserve it. We're the very last people who deserve Christ's love. As the cross demonstrates God's love for us in our absolutely greatest need, the need of forgiveness, so our love, too, must focus on others' needs and on building them up in love. It's a tough pattern, isn't it? tough pattern to follow. And surely we'd be tempted to despair if it wasn't for the fact that the cross is also the power. It's not just the pattern of love, but it is also the power of love. The wonderful message of Ephesians thus far, and let us be clear on this, we must not miss this. The message of Ephesians is that we can't do this by ourselves. It's right that we look at this and we despair. How could I ever live up to this standard? We can't. The glorious message of the gospel is that actually... We are dead in our sins. By nature, we can't live up to this standard. There's no way that we could love people like this. And yet the great news is that though we were dead, through Christ's death in our place, we've been given a new self. We were hearing that last week, weren't we? A cipher talked about it, that changing of the old self to the new self. Paul put it elsewhere, didn't he? That I've been crucified together with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So said, I swear, didn't he, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The glorious message of Ephesians is we can't do this by ourselves, but by the power of the cross and the Holy Spirit applying to our lives, we can. We can live lives of love. Perhaps Bert was right. There is too little of that sort of love. The right sort of love, we should say. The love that looks back to the cross for its pattern and the love that looks back for its power and out to serve people and uh, the world. Dietrich Bonhoeff who was a German pastor said this that the church in the first place is the image of Christ and I guess for all of us that should be our prayer shouldn't it that as God's people as people who are forgiven and loved and redeemed by the Lord Jesus that we too should be people who reflect that who live that out so that we would be a church that imitates him as beloved children as paul says did he love children and live a life of love well as we finish i wonder if you remember eric the eel Musum and you remember him from the uh, sydney olympics yeah a few nods yeah he was of course the swimmer from equatorial uh, guinea who uh I don't think he'd really swum much, actually, before he ended up in the Olympics. He certainly never swum in, a, uh, in an Olympic high uh, swimming pool. Uh, he'd done most of his training, I think, in the sea, of all places, and uh, through some kind of wild card awarded by the Olympics uh, committee, he found himself swimming a uh, 100 metres freestyle heat uh, in front of the crowds at the Sydney Olympics. Uh, he was alone because his other competitors had dropped out for some reason, uh, He completed it in a record slow time. Uh, It's worth watching on YouTube. um, Much to to everyone's surprise uh, that he even finished it. But also even more surprising was that everyone cheered him. He was uh, cheered all the way through the end. When he eventually did uh, make it without drowning, he uh, did get to the end and hauled himself out and caught his breath. They thrust a microphone in front of his face. And uh, with the aid of a translator, because he speaks French, obviously... He said that it was only the crowd's encouragement that kept him going and stopped him from giving up. And I guess as we close, just a reminder, isn't it, that what we say to one another is absolutely vital if we're going to build each other up in Christ as his people. Our our call is to be people who are maturing, who are building each other up, who are becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Uh, And my prayer for us, as we go from this place, is that our speech, indeed, would be encouraging. It would be forgiving it would be loving. And as Christ has loved us, that we too might finish the race and uh, claim the prize that we have for us. Shall we pray as we uh, close? Lord, these are hard sayings of your word, and I guess each one of us knows and can think of times when we have not uh, spoken in ways either to each other or to uh, other people, uh, ways that are loving, that are encouraging, ways that are are an imitation of how you speak to us. And we pray that as we gather around your table, you would nourish us, but more than that, you would change us by your spirit to be more and more imitators of you. We want to be people who please you, who love you, and who speak words uh, that build each other up for your name's sake. Help us, we pray. Amen. Thank you.